Okay, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 2, verse 39 through 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and with favor and of God, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God and man. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Father, Let us see with the eyes of our mind and with the understanding of our heart and with the affections of our deepest yearnings this week in history and learn from it for how we should live to the glory of Jesus, your Son. Amen. If ever there were a time to use the slogan WWJD, what would Jesus do? This passage is it. What we see here this morning is not only a lesson for 12-year-old kids or 15-year-old, or 25, or 67, or 43, or 92-year-old kids. Actually, it is for those. (laughs) It is a lesson 
for every age, for every believer. The spiritual discipline that we see in Jesus of listening intently to teachers of the Bible. To asking questions of them, of what he's hearing. Of drawing inferences and answering and showing a growth in understanding Holy Scripture. If that's a part of Jesus' life, it should be a part of every genuine believer's life to be conformed to the image of this Jesus. But we have to consider what's in this passage first, and we'll come back at the end again, and therefore draw out how is it that we can follow Christ in what we see here in this passage. So, most of you know, what we have here in Luke 2 is the only place in the entire Bible that has any doings or sayings of Jesus between the birth narrative and then when he pops up at age 30, 31, 32, 33 years old in his ministry. Nothing but this. And for genuine believers who, yes, I see it, I believe he is the Creator who became human It is natural for our minds to wonder about a lot of stuff. I mean, heaven's a big one, isn't it? Oh, how many times I hear, okay, what will heaven be like? Or His second coming and our resurrection. Will we be like that? Will we see so-and-so like that? Will we do... We wonder. And the Bible is silent about a lot of stuff. And how our minds may wonder... This Jesus, who is God, who became a human being, and we saw Him in the manger. What was He like when He's two? Or six? What did He do when He woke up? What did He think? How did He interact when He's eight? When He's twelve? Actually, in the early church, in the first couple centuries, in the second century, third century, fourth century, Christians were doing this wondering. And we can find some of their wondering about it in what is called the New Testament Apocrypha. These, this is literature that came about 150 to 200 years later to 300 years later. Many times, Christians with bad theology, and the church knew it, and they wanted to try to construct a gospel, for instance, like the Gospel of Thomas, that would show their theology that the church was rejecting. And they would write these things like in the name of Thomas. And, and in, okay, so there's numbers of this kind of literature that the church never considered in any way genuine because it clearly wasn't. It was clearly very late. And in there you get stories like the boy, Jesus. One day there's some clay pigeons. And he makes them come alive. And they fly away. There's another time his dad, Joseph, messed up the family plow. 
Jesus went over there as a boy, touched it, and it was all better. And there's bizarre stories. Jesus is he's walking in and all of a sudden another boy bumps into him and he gets angry. And he curses that boy and he withers up and dies. Okay. But you come to Luke. The thing about Luke, it's not written 300 years later. It's written in A.D. 63, A.D. 64, somewhere around there. Luke, as he has already shown at the beginning of his narrative, he says, this is real, thorough scholarship. Eyewitness accounts. I have thoroughly researched his narrative. And we remember he's hanging with Paul. And Paul ended up in prison in the late 50s. About 20, 23, 24 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's in prison, Jerusalem, and then over there by the ocean in Caesarea. So Luke is there for a couple years in Judea. A little trip up to Galilee or in Judea. Mary's most likely still alive. James, Jesus' brother's there. I think this is what Luke is doing. He's dropping hints. The reason I know what happened here is Mary told me. Now, if she wasn't alive, clearly then James told me what his mom told him. This is what happened. I think that's what he's doing. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 19, do you remember the birth, the shepherds, the angel appearance? Okay. Luke says, but Mary, when all that happened, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. How do you know, Luke? I talked to her. Or after our narrative here, when Jesus is 12, he, he ends it there in verse 51 saying this, And he, Jesus, went down with them to Nazareth, and he came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things. In her heart. There's no wild, miraculous, crazy legend stuff here. You got Jesus sitting in the temple, blowing people's minds, age 12. So let's go to the text, beginning at verse 39. Remember, Jesus is born, then 40 days old, his parents take him to Jerusalem to be dedicated. They do the sacrifices for their purification. Anna, Simeon showed up, had words to say. And the very next thing now Luke tells us in his narrative is this. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let me just make a quick note. Luke throughout is, is seen to very purposefully been saying to the Greek Roman leader Theophilus, who's a Gentile, trying to figure out how is it that... Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Messiah, when the Jews killed Him. And He is constantly saying stuff like, Joseph and Mary 
did according to the law. Again, did according to the law. Sacrificed according to the law. He, he is saying these people were not anti-Jew, anti-Jewish Scripture. They loved the law of Moses. And, and we see it again here. And then verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And there it is again. These are committed, God-loving Jews. Now, they went every year to the Passover. The books of Moses say that every Jewish man is to go to the tabernacle, or now the temple, which has been for centuries in Jerusalem, is to go to the temple three times a year. Three major feast. The Passover, which is also connected with unleavened bread, which goes on for a week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you get the Passover, they're supposed to go to the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and they're supposed to go to the Feast of Booths. And by the first century, when you live far off like they did, 80 miles walking is far off. It's a four-day journey. So we take a four-day journey with my family. We're almost to the other side of the country on the East Coast. Okay, it's a ways off. So in the first, you only had to go to one of these. It became custom in the first century. And every year, they would go to Passover. They were, again, devout. Pick up in verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, Jesus they went up according to custom. Now, had Jesus ever been to Passover in Jerusalem? We don't know. It might have been his first. Might not have. But that he mentions this particular occasion at age 12 may be really significant. Because not only do we know it's true now for Jewish boys with what is called bar mitzvah, now, the present-day custom of bar mitzvah and the way it is, isn't exactly what they had in the first century, but the same idea was there. At age 13, in the first century, is when Jewish boys would become sons of the commandment. That's what bar mitzvah means. Bar, son, mitzvah of the commandment. Sons of the commandment. And they would be now independently responsible, not under the parents, but responsible directly to God and to the law of Moses. And this is that twelfth year. This is leading up to it. He has been instructed in Scripture his whole life by his parents. And he's probably really delving into Scripture in this twelfth year before his thirteenth birthday. Now, what I want to do for a moment, I want to read from the commentator Kent Hughes and let him draw a picture of what this week in Jerusalem may have been like. When the jostling, merry throng passed through the gates of the holy city, a grand sight met Jesus' twelve-year-old eyes. Some 200,000 pilgrims packed out the walled city. Every available space was rented 
And in lieu of rent, cheerful hosts were given the hides of sheep sacrificed by their guests. Merchants who had come in advance lined the streets displaying their wares, and beggars stationed themselves strategically by the city's ancient gates. The most intense activity was at the sheep stalls where pilgrims bartered for sheep and goats to sacrifice in the temple. When the sun rose on Passover, intense activity filled the encampments, the homes, and especially the temple. A full contingent of priests, 24 divisions instead of the customary one division, attended the temple. Their first task of the day on Passover was to take the leaven that had been gathered by candlelight from each home and ceremonially burn it. Next, they prepared for the ritual slaughtering of the Passover lambs. By midday, all work stopped and a holy air of anticipation rested over Jerusalem. At about three o'clock, the sacrifice began. We may well surmise that Joseph and his relatives, in preparation for Jesus' manhood, took pre-adolescent Jesus into the temple with them so that he could observe the sacrifice. If so, as the gates of the temple court closed behind the vast group of worshipers, he heard a ram's horn sound and just saw Joseph in concert with hundreds of other worshipers, slaughter his family's lamb. The priest, standing in two rows, caught the blood in gold and silver basins and doused it against the base of the altar. Levites sang Psalm 113-118 to above the din as Jesus' father dressed his lamb and before leaving, slung the animal wrapped in its own skin over his shoulder and departed with his young son in tow. At home, the lamb was roasted on a pomegranate spit and eaten after sundown by the whole family. In the flickering amber light of the candle-decked room, the meal was joyfully consumed according to Passover liturgy with interspersed hand washings, prayers, and psalms. At the conclusion, the son, perhaps Jesus was given the privilege, asked the father the ceremonial question. Why is this night different from all other nights? And his father responded with a moving review of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. When young Jesus finally went to sleep, the dazzling images of Passover undoubtedly danced in his awakening human soul. And that was not all. Jesus' devout family stayed for a whole week in Jerusalem so that their 12-year-old had the run of the old city, especially the temple. Jesus spent those seven days in holy delight. Every rite or ritual spoke volumes to his soul. His nimble mind connected Scripture with Scripture, and then with life.
And at the end of that week, we pick up in verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group or caravan, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Okay. Maybe, we don't know. There's a large caravan. When you travel 80 miles like that, you go with a bunch of people. Your relatives, their families, your friends from your town, and it's much safer. You don't want to travel the roads at night on a journey. You'll get robbed. They travel in large caravans this four-day journey. Maybe Joseph thought, it was with you, Mary, while you're hanging out with the women all day walking. Maybe Mary thought, he's with him. Or... Maybe they're walking together and he's hanging out with his cousins and his friends. I mean, kids have a ball on a four-day walk in roads and playing and pretending they have bow and arrows and whatever they're doing. This is just normal stuff. And then sun's going down in the caravan. They're, they're camping and the fires are going and Mary's got meat. And finally says, hey, go get Jesus. Dinner's ready. Huh? I thought you knew where he was. I thought you did. Do you feel it yet? And so they look. And they go to every family, every campfire. And he's not there. Panic. You ever felt it? My wife and I have. We, had, we were with a large caravan at the beach one time. There's at least 20, maybe 22, 23 of us. Friends and family, adults, teenagers, and lots of kids. And the sun's going down. Everyone's been playing. And we've been playing a game, a board game with a bunch of us. And then, you know what, we've got to start packing up. Sun's setting. And I go to the parking lot and take a load and come back and get another load. And I start getting word, have you seen Matt? No. And we find out that the teenagers hadn't seen Matt in a long time. Everybody, you always assume he's with somebody else. The panic. You go that way. This group goes that way. We go that way. There's no one on the beach but us. And we run both directions in the parking lot and on the beach. And after six and a half, seven minutes going toward the water, the thoughts go in your mind, through your mind. Did he drown? And at that moment, while I'm dying, dialing 911, you run across your wife in panic. And 911 says, He's safe. The lifeguards have him. They find out. No one's seen him for ten hours. He's got to be back in the big, huge city of Jerusalem. Takes another day's journey to get there. That's the second day. And then on the third day, 
it picks up in verse 46. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple. They found Him there, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Him were amazed. They were amazed at His understanding. They were amazed at the depth of His grasp, insight, and at His answers. And when His parents saw Him, they also were amazed. And so, they find Him. And where they find Him, and what He was doing when they found Him, is the point of why Luke puts this in the narrative. A 12-year-old boy. You don't know what 12 is? Nathan and Justin are going to turn 12 in the next somewhere in the next 12 months. A 12-year-old boy astounded the PhDs. The scholars, the preeminent theologians and thinkers of the Jews. They were astounded. I mean, they were struck at his reasoning ability. They were struck at his intellect, his understanding. And when he opened his mouth for questions and answers, I think we need to stop a little bit before we move on. What in the world's going on here? What are we to make of this? Now, throughout our journey through the Gospel of Luke over these first, what, two months, we have already seen that the person who was conceived in the womb of Mary was born in Bethlehem and was raised in the house of Joseph and Mary in Nazareth, was no ordinary person. He was not even just an extraordinary person. But that baby born, who became a toddler and now is on the verge of adolescence, was God incarnate. That's what we've seen this in the narrative already. In previous sermons, we have already thought deeply about this person, this Jesus, in the womb, being truly God. And truly human. One person, two natures, not two persons, not a divine Jesus 
and a human Jesus. One Jesus with two distinct natures that have come together in perfect union in the one person. The natures, though, are distinct. They're united in the one person. But the natures, as we have already discussed, are not affected or changed by the other. They don't come together and mix humanness with divineness and come up with a thirdness. No. Okay, so we, we've been there, we've discussed that. When the website goes up, probably this week, there it's there. Okay, so let's just, just continue the progress as we're thinking about what's going on here. So, when the shepherds raced to Bethlehem that night, there is a sense in which they encountered God in the manger. And there's a sense in which these preeminent scholars, teachers in the temple, are encountering God in this 12-year-old boy. But, okay, hold that there. We know, and if you don't, you ought to know, God does not have arms and legs. He cannot Godness is not physical. God does not have intestines that eliminate food. Okay, that's fairly easy. Let's keep going. God in nature does not have a human soul, a human mind that has the capacity to develop. To grow. To learn something he didn't know the moment before. See, all of that would be impossible for the nature of God. God transcends everything that is created. He transcends in His Godness everything that is human, that makes us human creatures dependent on all kinds of things just to continue living. Not the nature of God. Okay? So, the baby lying helpless in the manger... Became 40 days old. Became a year old. Started probably earlier than most of us to take his first step. Started probably earlier than most of us to speak words. Was learning from his parents the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, In Aramaic. In Greek. It was learning not only alphabet, but now he's three. I know that's early. I think probably three. Learning to read. 
decipher meaning from marks on a page. And now he's on the verge of adolescence in the temple, hashing things out with the greatest minds of the Jews of that day. When that was happening, that was God with us. But, you've got to get it, He was with us in that He took to Himself a new nature. He didn't get rid of the old one, but He took another one, human nature, and thus He was God with us. And so, this 12-year-old kid in the temple is fully human. He's not partially human. And he is not deified flesh. His hair is human hair. His intestines are human intestines. His heart is a human heart that is actually pumping blood through the body so that it stays alive. And the non-physical aspect of him, his soul, mind. I know. See, a brain is physical. A mind is not. To operate through a human body, it's going to have to go through the brain. We understand that. But that aspect of his humanness was truly human. All these aspects of this 12-year-old kid, he had human attributes. Everything that belongs to the genuine human nature, this 12-year-old kid had, except one thing, sin nature. He was without sin. He was the only human being since Adam to ever come into the world unaffected by original sin. Unaffected by the nature of sinfulness. And never sin. He is the new Adam. The second Adam. This one person in the 12-year-old boy who happened to be the second person of the Holy Trinity, that one person now has a flawless, perfect human nature. So he took to himself, as we have seen, this human nature in the womb of his mother Mary. And at conception, that day with Gabriel, he began to develop. He began to grow. And he continued and was born. And he didn't stop.
He continued to develop as humans develop. So if you ask, when Jesus was goo-gooing in the manger, did He know that the earth revolves around the sun? Yes. And no. Depends on what you mean. He never ceased to be God in nature. But some mysterious way, that one eternal person, as Philippians 2 says, (laughs) humbled himself. And didn't refuse to become human in every way. And so, in His divineness, did, can God, and there's only one God, there's not three gods, can God ever cease to be omniscient and thus know all truths? No. But somehow, it's mysterious. He was able to become human and actually experience not knowing stuff in His human nature, not His divine nature. So if you ask, in His human nature, did that baby know that scientific truth? No. Of course not. How could He know? He hadn't been around long enough to be taught and to learn and to think and to develop in that way. You must distinguish between that one person's divine nature and that one person's human nature. So this one-week-old baby, of course, has lots of stuff he doesn't know and he's going to learn. This is what I think Luke means. If you look at verse 40, when he makes a statement like this, and the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom. Or, again, look down at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years. Now, God does not increase in anything. It's impossible for Him to increase in wisdom or in any way. But humans do. Okay, are you with me so far? Alright. Then what the heck is going on here when this kid is 12 years old? Let me say something so that you understand that I understand this because of what I'm going to say and I believe this. Okay. Let me just set Jesus aside for a moment. Just take us sinners like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. Yes, God and His nature can come into the world and affect the human soul and give it information that it could not have any other way. Okay, you with that? He, he can do that. God, the divinity of God, can come even to us creatures and 
impart information, wisdom, knowledge that we could not have gotten got it another way. He could have done that with Jesus. And clearly, in Jesus' ministry, we see it happening all the time. He's reading people's minds. So, the divine nature is coming through the human nature in doing something. That happens. Got it? But, I don't think that's what's happening in the temple. I don't think that's Luke's point. That Jesus just sat around and watched TV all day, never learned a thing, and then, ooh, the Holy Spirit just kind of like spoke through him and amazed everybody. I don't think that is Luke's point, the way the narrative has been flowing since we began. In other words, just think about it. For a 12-year-old boy to just blow the minds of these PhDs and scholars with his depth of understanding. It would not have required for him to have the Holy Spirit secretly impart information and wisdom to him at that moment. What I mean is, any 12-year-old boy, any non-second person of the Holy Trinity, but a creature like you and me, any 12-year-old boy that was born without original sin and all of its debilitating effects upon our humanity and our minds and our souls would astound these scholars with his intellect and reasoning and wisdom would put them to shame. I think that's what's going on. The effects of the fall are so much more severe upon us than we have ever imagined. Our minds have been darkened by sin. Our intellectual capabilities have been smashed in comparison to what it would have been to be without sin. We still have the ability to compute 2 plus 2 is 4. Good. And there are in history, once in a while, a Plato comes along. Or an Aristotle, or an Aurelius Augustine, or a Mozart, or an Isaac Newton, or an Albert Einstein. That happens. What would have those people who were geniuses in a particular category, what would have they accomplished if they were not absolutely crippled by their original sin? The 12-year-old boy, Jesus, in the temple had absolutely no mental or intellectual weaknesses because he was not under the debilitating, destructive, darkening weight of original sin upon him. That's what I think is going on. See, if you were to ask me, okay, wow. Mozart, what is he, four or five when he composes his first symphony? 
This is just weird stuff in that area. You know? And there have been all kinds of weird, to most of us, mathematicians. How do they do that? Okay. So all the genius from Plato's to Aristotle's to, to, to Mozart's to Beethoven's to, to, to the greatest minds and thinkers, how do you think Jesus compared to them? Do you think He was as bright intellectually and as wise in any way as them? Much more. That's what I think. When God united Himself to a human nature, He united Himself to a flawless, unaffected by sin, perfect human nature. And He did it so that He, in becoming one of us, would live under His Father's holy, perfect, righteous law and do it sinlessly. In perfect righteousness on behalf of those He's saving. So that His life would be attributed as the life lived of all who embrace Him. He did it so that He would come that one day. Now the time is fulfilled. Leave the guards alone and let them take me. That He would be slaughtered in order to absorb the perfect wrath of God for our sins on our behalf so that this one human being would free us who are absolutely, eternally crippled with original sin from those bonds. He would free all of us who have been united to Adam And in Adam, we have all become guilty and transfer us to be united with the second Adam. So no wonder we read After three days, they found Him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Him were amazed at this 12-year-old's understanding and His answers. And when His parents saw Him, they were amazed. Same word. And his mother said to him, Son. Okay, okay. I almost wanted to paraphrase. But why did you do this? They're a little baffled. But you know, you know, their life is a little weird. You understand that, right? These angel experiences and becoming pregnant. Okay. They, they know something's up and they don't. Okay. But, and he's. He, uh, he's been sinless 
Parents, we cannot imagine. (laughs) Why'd you do this? We were frantic. We get the very first words recorded in Scripture. Anyway, out of Jesus' mouth. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And they did not understand the saying that He spoke to them. So here they are. They're frantic. Why? I and and your father, Joseph here, were frantic. And then it seems as if there is in this first words that Luke is going to give us, a gentle but clear line that Jesus draws between His earthly Father, Joseph, and His eternal Father, God. I, th- I, th- I think this whole week happened that way. And it could have happened without Jesus staying behind His parents not knowing it. It could have happened without that absolute terror that went on and on. For my wife and I, those seven, eight minutes felt like a lifetime. And I won't forget them. These three days... They won't forget him. And years later, Luke, let me tell you something. I think it happened so that that would happen, and Jesus' words would happen at this crucial stage of his life on the verge of manhood, where he's telling his parents in this unforgettable scenario who his father really is, and I know it more and more. And the older Jesus will be getting, his devotion to his father will be taking more and more of a front seat, even to the devotion of his earthly family. We'll hear it later. Who are my mother, my brothers, my sister? I'll tell you who they are. Those who hear the Word of God and do it. And even right here, Simeon's prophecy is becoming true. Mary, a sword will pierce your own heart. And so the text says, and they did not understand the saying. So, you've got to remember, Joseph And Mary did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Romans while they're raising Jesus. They know something's up. It it had to have been something like putting together a jigsaw puzzle without the picture on the box. What is this? What are these pieces? Oh, I think I see something. It looks like it may be a portion of a tree here or this part. What is that meaning in his life? They didn't have the full picture of what's this supposed to be? How does it all work? Even His disciples hanging with Him, living with Him, 
eating with Him, traveling with Him, having personal conferences with Him for a few years when He would say, this is what I'm going to do. No, you're not. That's how hard it was to get what His life meant and who He really was. I've got to think, in my imagination, for Mary, as she is, Luke likes to say, treasuring up these things in his heart. She's just going to bed at night at times saying, who is? Who is this unique son of mine? And this week was a, another piece in that jigsaw puzzle for Mary. So what would Jesus do What we read in this text is that He did something. There's no way in the world I could come to it and say, oh, that's not a model for us. His model, yes, it was human. And it was human perfection to which it is impossible for any of us sinners to get to on this side of the resurrection. But it is something we are to pursue and to model. It says, He increased in wisdom. He increased in wisdom from birth to the age of twelve, And He increased in wisdom from the age of 12 on out through His life. He was wise. Oh, was He wise and wiser and wiser and wiser as a human being. Wisdom. To become wise. Isn't it? It's taking the raw materials of knowledge, of facts, of truth, And seeing their connection in life and in particular circumstances that dictate how one ought to think and how one ought to act. I think it's a basic good definition of what it is to grow in wisdom. It is having, as this text says, his understanding just blew their minds. There was an insight into life, in everything of life. Knowledge, truth, facts, humanity, people that He had. And it will lead to appropriate actions. And if you're Jesus, if you are that human being who has never missed it, wisdom will always lead to the perfect thing to do. And here's the thing from this text. It's just there. That that guide for Jesus, perfect wisdom, that blueprint on how to construct this human life was the written Word of God. That is what is clearly assumed in the text. When He was in the midst of the teachers and asking questions and giving answers and they're saying stuff, there was a centerpiece. The Holy Scripture. 
and its implications for life. So think about it. If the second person of the Trinity, if the Lord Jesus Christ followed the blueprint of the Word of God in His life and grew more knowledgeable and more wise, how can any of us today in the church ever say, I don't need doctrine. I don't need to understand troubling mysteries of life. I don't need to try to figure out a way to reconcile my belief system with a reality I see in the world. I don't, I'm not too troubled about this text says this, but this text says that. Ah, I'm not going to worry about it. If God, who became a 12-year-old boy, made His life this book, how could any of us being saved by Him jettison it? I mean, really, in our life. I mean, it's on the table. How could we not follow Him who asked questions? Who inquired? And you don't ask questions unless you do the other thing the text said. He listened. He listened carefully. Okay. Alright. Got that. Now. okay. Since you said that, and you said that, okay? Am I right? Good. What about this? What would Jesus do? One thing He would do is that right there. Pursue it. Pursue it. Pursue it. Let me just draw the simple inference from our passage. If the eternal Son of God in His growth as a human being submitted and was actually taught Scripture by His mom and His dad, and here at age 12, He sought out the preeminent scholars and teachers of the Scripture of His day, and He carefully paid attention to what they were saying, and then asked questions, and gave answers. If that's true, then how much more should every Christian pursue this same pattern throughout their lives? The very best thinkers, teachers, in history are those who ask questions. Of people, when you're all alone of a book, I, the first key to learning how to ask questions is get rid of pride and be honest. I have no idea what that means. There's a question. Writer, what do you mean? He might mean nothing, and he's a terrible writer, then you can finally throw it away, but give it three shots. 
or your husband or your wife over any subject, or a teacher or a pastor or a friend eating a donut after church. The way pride gets in the way of people growing in wisdom and knowledge and understanding is this. Pride causes them to care more about how they appear if they ask that question. That is preeminently, they might think I'm stupid. I, I, I don't want people to think I'm stupid. You stay and you stay dumb. But when the, the yearning to know especially Scripture, to allow yourself to be plagued with theological problems, and that that becomes stronger than what you feel people think, then you could, you'll ask. Okay, uh, that was really good. Okay, I don't know what you meant, or I think you meant that. Help me. It is a doorway to wisdom, to growing, to learning. And that just leads to the question we all have to ask ourselves from this text. What am I doing to grow like Jesus? What am I doing to grow and to develop and to increase in wisdom and in the things of God? Do I have a regular time before the Scripture, the Holy Scripture, prayerfully in my life? Do I talk about theology? Scripture. Meaning with other Christians. Dialogue about it. Do I interact with solid books outside the Bible? Do I let them cause me to learn more, to think to grapple with. Do I interact even with MP3 files in our day? Listen. Be troubled. Learn. Be enlightened. Do I pursue increase in knowledge and wisdom? Is it possible that hard thinking will lead to glorious things about God? that we'll see about Christ, about the clarity of the Gospel, about our lives in it, and thus how we are to live and how we are to act and how we are to love. May we be conformed more and more to the image of this Jesus. At least this Jesus at age 12 by praying, by reading, by thinking, by questioning, by changing, by growing. Let's pray. Father, I pray that no matter where each person is, our plea is, yes, do it more. Be our strength. 
we beg of the intrusion of your divine nature upon our human souls to cause us to hunger and to increase in wisdom in the Scriptures more and more to the glory of the name of your eternal Son and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.